So we begin our look at the Book of Lamentations. And uh, I mean, that, that five verses wasn't super cheery. <laughs> but don't worry, I have not taken on the persona of Eeyore, and I will, uh, will not be just mourning and upset and sad. Hopefully you'll understand how to see this better as we go through. So I want to start with a, a story from uh, a man by the name of Jim Collins. He wrote a book. It's a famous book. It's called Good to Great. Um, it's a book that many business leaders and just leaders in general read. And it's, it's about how to go from the average to the spectacular. And in it, he, he has this, this concept. It's called the Stockdale Paradox. It's named after an admiral during the Vietnam War. He was the highest ranking POW. Uh, in the famous or infamous Hanoi Hilton, the prisoner of war camp during the Vietnam War. For eight years, from 1965 to 1973, he was a prisoner there and was tortured over 20 times. After he got out, people wanted to know, how did you survive it? How did you get through it? And he had all these stories. But Jim Collins was more interested in finding out who didn't make it through. And Admiral Stockdale said, well, that's easy. The optimists, they're the ones that didn't make it through. And Collins said, well, wait, wait a second. What do you mean the optimists, really? And he goes, yeah, see, here's what the optimists would do. They would say, we're going to be out by Christmas. And then Christmas would come and Christmas would go. And they'd say, no, no, we'll be out by Easter. And then Easter would come and Easter would go. And then it would be Thanksgiving and then Christmas again. And Admiral Stockdale said, they died with a broken heart. See, Stockdale will continue and say, there's a very important lesson for us. And this lesson is that we're never to confuse faith that we will prevail, which we must have to survive, with the dealing with the reality that confronts you. So it's the combination must go together. So the Stockdale paradox is this. Those who are optimistic but not realistic tend to fail. That's not an always. It's not a law. It's a paradox. It's not the presence or absence of difficulty that makes someone fail. It's instead how they deal with difficulties in their lives. Collins writes, in wrestling with life's challenges, the Stockdale paradox has proved powerful from coming back from difficulties. Not weakened, but strengthened. Not just for me, but for all those who've learned the lesson. So this is it. Retain faith that you will prevail, regardless of the difficulties, and at the same time, confront the brutal facts of where you find yourself. Now, I think we need to, we need to make this a little more biblical, because I think the Stockdale Paradox has a good life lesson there, but you're here for Bible, and so let's take it to the Bible and see what the Bible has to say. So I've worded it like this. You can have faith that we will prevail in the end, because God promises us that. But we must also confront the brutal facts of our current reality. But praise be to God that we do not have to do this alone. So this is really where we're going to be going today. This is a little different than what we've done before. Uh, we, we tend to teach straight through passages. The book of Lamentations doesn't really lend itself to that. You would get five sermons of the same topic, and that's a little bit much for the book of Lamentations. However, we are going to look at the Book of Lamentations in its entirety, but we're going to look at it from four different themes as we go through. We'll talk about those here in a minute. So why Lamentations? 
talking about lamentation. Why are we preaching on lamenting? Well, the easy answer is, it's in the Bible. As a matter of fact, one-third of all the Psalms, all 150 of them, one-third of them are laments. We actually saw some of those this summer. Over the summer, if you've not been around for the summer, we do a Psalms of the Summer. And this is a series of Psalms. We do a Psalm a week for the summer. This last summer, we did Psalm 62 through 76. And five of those were Lamentations. As a matter of fact, my first sermon as your pastor was a lament, followed by my second sermon, which was also a lament. <laughs> I kind of wonder if they were taking advantage of the new guy. <laughs> but I was blessed by those, because in, in the lamenting in the Psalms, it's always a problem, an appeal to the Lord, and then a return to the Lord. The book of Lamentations doesn't exactly follow that structure. We'll talk about why here in a minute. Lament, which is what the Book of Lamentations gets its name from, is a believing response to pain. It's a believing response to the situation that you find yourself in. One of the commentators writes, ultimately lament can express deep trust in God or rejection of God. Lament becomes a spiritual experience of trustful humility or it becomes defiant pride. Biblical lament is a prayer Secular lament is complaint that leads to meaningless. So lament is ultimately a prayer. And the point of this prayer is to lead us to trust the Lord better. It focuses on God. It's to help us build up trust in the Lord. So we have to learn from lament. And we need to learn from it because, one, the Lord inspired his writers to write laments. So clearly it's something we need to be able to understand. So that's why we're teaching. It allows us to see what does God intend from this terrible situation I find myself in. What does God intend from the pain that I'm feeling, the anguish, the sorrow? It reminds me of, of war memorials. I'm a big history buff, and I like stopping at memorials. And I have a couple of kids that really enjoy memorials and museums. But when you go to a memorial, right, you go there and it's to remember what has happened. And many times these memorials will say something like, never again, or we will never forget. And ultimately, that's what laments are for. They're to help us remember. Because we can remember those times of pain and sorrow, and they're very clear. I remember times in my life when I've had things happen to me or to loved ones. Those times I can remember as if they were yesterday, when I can't really remember yesterday very well. So Lamentations is a memorial to a broken world and a holy God. Now the Hebrew word for lament is the word ah. Now the translation of that word is literally ah. <laughs> I'm not kidding. That's what it says in the commentaries. I double checked this and I read my travels. It's, it's the word ah. So when we think about it, in the Bible it says, have you taken your ah to the Lord? Right? And if you don't know what that feeling is, go hang around some kids. They won't listen to you and you're going to make that sound. <laughs> that, ah, but there's even more to this. There's more to it. It's even deeper than that. It's a heartfelt, why? Why, Lord? Why? And that's what this word lament means in the Hebrew. 
So we are to pour ourselves out to God in prayer. It serves the Christian to not only see the pain and sorrow, but what is underneath it, what lies underneath it. Christian lament is one of the most theologically rich things we can do. It ought to be, because when we lament, what we think about God, what we think about ourselves, what we think about the world come to the surface. So in summary, lament can retune our lives and our hearts to what's really important. It detaches us from the superficiality and grounds us in the deep reality. So as we do this, we want to be familiar with lamentations. So, like I said, we're not going to teach straight through lamentations. Instead, we're going to do a thematic look. And so over the next, today and the next three weeks, we're going to have different looks at the book of lamentations. Two of the weeks you'll have, one week you'll have Scott, one week you'll have Travis, one week you'll have me, and we rotate around, and you guys are going to have a different perspective on a different portion of Lamentations. So here are the four perspectives. The one today we're dealing with is how do we deal with reality? And really that's our focus for today. I don't put titles on sermons, but that would be basically our title. Next week, we're going to look on how can we commit to praise God anyway? And then in two more weeks, we're going to talk about complaining to God. And then finally, we're going to talk about turning to God and what that looks like. And so these are going to be, again, they're going to branch throughout the book of Lamentations. If I was going to reference all the passages that title what we're looking at today, Ray would still be up here reading them. Because they, it goes throughout. And that's the way the book of Lamentations is. The book of Lamentations is actually five poems an acrostic poem, meaning that it takes a letter of the Hebrew alphabet and it has the sentence start with that letter. So the first chapter is 22 verses long because there's 22 letters in the Hebrew alphabet. The second chapter goes through the same alphabet. The third chapter goes through the alphabet but gives a paragraph for each one. And then the fourth and fifth are back to that same 22. And it repeats itself over and over again because I think when we'll see if we are honest, Grief repeats itself. You don't just get over something because it keeps coming back over and over. Now, it's not as painful farther on down the road, away from the event, but it's still painful. And that's how grief works. And I think that's what Lamentations is kind of behind the scenes teaching us. So we're going to look at these four themes. And today we're going to look at how do we face reality? How do we face the brutal facts that confront us? So in order to do that, we need to see what are the facts behind the Book of Lamentations. Now, Jeremiah is thought to be the author of the Book of Lamentations. We don't know for sure he didn't sign his name on it, but knowing that the Book of Jeremiah ends with the destruction of Jerusalem and Lamentations is talking about it, it's a pretty fair guess, and all of our historians believe it's true. So what was going on with Jeremiah that led for him to write a book called Lamentations? Well, in 587, Jerusalem, the capital of Judah, is conquered. It falls. Its leaders and many of its people are taken 600 miles away from their home to be exiled in Babylon. This is accounted for us in 2 Kings chapter 25. And the book of Jeremiah as well. The book of Jeremiah is more dealing with prophecies and the things that Jeremiah brings out. But the book of Jeremiah ends with the statement of what happens to Jerusalem. And then Lamentations is his attempt to try to make sense of it. Something bad has happened, and then this is the commentary. This is the crying out to the Lord. So there are five disasters that happen to Jerusalem, and they literally happen one on top of each other. 
right? We, we know what that's like. It seems like 2020 was one on top of each other. But these would have all happened in the span of a few weeks. And when we look at them, they're even more terrible than our 2020. First thing is, the enemies encircle the city and begin a siege, which is code word for sit outside the city and watch the people inside die. The next thing that happened was the people starved. And all of the most horrific things that you can imagine that happens when people starve happened in Jerusalem. So as the people starve, finally they lose the resolve to fight, and their enemies break down the walls. They burst into the, into the city, randomly killing people, and then they occupy the city. And as with any occupying army, all sorts of atrocities happen. And then finally, they destroy the temple. They destroy the temple. And this is a huge deal. It's so big that to this day, Jewish people in the world have a fast on what's called the Ninth of Ab, which this year is July 18th. It's basically a fast to remember how bad this was and to never let it happen again. Eugene Peterson says, the Book of Lamentations is a funeral service for the death of a city. So why does this matter? What's the big deal? I mean, nations have had their capitals conquered all throughout history. What's the big deal? Well, we have to understand the, the, the perspective that the Israelites have on Jerusalem. The first thing we see is in Genesis 12, Abraham is promised a land, he's promised a seed, and he's promised a blessing. Now, it takes a long time for that promise to be fulfilled. It involves the Israelites being in bondage in Egypt, wandering the wilderness, but finally the Israelites get their land. And then a few hundred years later, David conquers Jerusalem and makes it the capital. Now, David was a man of war, so he wasn't allowed by God to build a temple, but his son Solomon came in, and he builds the temple. And the temple is the tabernacle, but permanent. Literally, it's God's place on earth. Yahweh, the God of Israel, is residing in the temple. This was the place where they would go to worship. This is the place they would go for festivals. This is the place they would go for all of it. Their worship was tied to a place. It's very different than ours. We may be able to worship better here, but you can go up on a mountainside and worship the God of the universe and hear from him. The Jews didn't see that. They, they saw it tied to a place. But unfortunately, Israel's kings only got worse. To the point where Israel is split into two, and the northern kingdom, which was called Israel, and the southern kingdom, which is called Judah, had a succession of kings who worshipped God, but then also worshipped other gods. And then eventually, they didn't even pretend to worship God, they just worshipped other gods. The northern kingdom is wiped out by the Assyrians. And a few hundred years later, what we see here, the Judah, Judah, Judah's kingdom, Jerusalem, is wiped out as well. The temple is gone. No longer do they feel like they have a God that is for them. So Lamentations is trying to understand this. See, the facts are, is that the kings of Judah and the kings of Israel had long ago left God behind and worshipped false gods. They created high places where they would worship Ashtoreth and Baal and Molech. They invited foreign gods to be the God of Israel when the God of Israel was the God of Israel. Now, their home is decimated, but you notice this is the last portion of their, of their depravity, the last portion of their problems. They had had spiritual problems for countless years. These kings had denied reality for a very long time because the most, the most basic fact of reality is there is a God and you're not him. 
And these kings didn't believe that. And God had told them. It's not like God hadn't given them warnings. He had sent prophet after prophet after prophet saying, you keep doing this, God's going to judge you. And they kept going, that'll never happen to us. We're God's chosen people. We'll be fine. And then God came through with his promises because he is a God who keeps his promises. And they were destroyed. And they went, why? So the third thing we're going to look at is how does Jeremiah face these facts? And we see this in the, the passage that, that Ray read just a minute ago. Verse 1, how lonely sits the city that was full of people. How like a widow has she become. She who was great among the nations, she who was a princess among the provinces, has become a slave. A place that was full of people is now empty. Barren, windswept. Pastor Scott said, imagine an old western movie with a tumbleweed going through, and you're imagining what this looks like. <clears throat> How amazing it would be to see that, a city that had been full of people and now completely empty. Verse 2, she weeps bitterly in the night with tears on her cheeks. Among all her lovers, she has none to comfort her. All her friends have dealt treacherously with her. They have become her enemies. So, Jeremiah is using personification where he takes, it, takes Jerusalem and says she. So he's making it have emotions and feelings. And he said, this is like a person who is weeping bitterly. The Hebrew for weeping bitterly means weeping with the side of weeping. It's weeping with extra weeping. This is not weeping that's for a moment, but this is weeping that continues. Verse 3, Judah has gone into exile because of affliction and hard servitude. She dwells now among the nations, but finds no rest, no resting place. Her pursuers have overtaken her in the midst of her distress. So she's going into exile. She's leaving her home, not to return for years, for centuries. And there's no help coming. She's called for help, but no one's coming. Verse 4, the roads to Zion mourn, for none come to the festival. All her gates are desolate, her priests groan, her virgins have been afflicted. She herself suffers bitterly. If you remember, you know, the Jews had festivals that people would travel to Jerusalem for. And there were anywhere between four and six of these, depending on what time period you're looking at. Remember, Jesus' family had gone to the, the temple later on, when there is a temple, after Herod built one, and he gets left there. That was because they went for a festival. Festivals were a big deal. These were their holidays. And so Jeremiah is saying, there's no one here for the festival. It's Passover, and the city's empty. It's Pentecost, no one's here. And look at those words, mourning, desolate, groaning, afflicted, bitterly. These are not words that we want to have associated with what we're going through. Verse 5, her foes have become the head, her enemies prosper because the Lord has afflicted her. For the multitude of her transgressions, her children have gone away, captive, captives before the foe. We'll skip forward to verse 8. Jerusalem sinned grievously. Therefore she became filthy. All who honored her despise her, for they have seen her nakedness. She herself groans and turns her face away. And so Jeremiah is saying, this is from the Lord. This is what we deserve. We have earned this. This is not some happenstance and God's like, oh, I wasn't watching. Israel just got attacked. No, God's saying, I'm allowing this to happen. We're going to deal with that in a future sermon. But they see that there's shame here. They recognize their sin. So Jerusalem's despair and ruin is the base permeating fact throughout the book of Lamentations. And it's not just sadness that they lost their nation 
and that their capital city was destroyed, but it's their access to God was taken away. And we know that God is not confined to a single place, and we understand that God's the God of everywhere. But for the Jews and how they tried to understand this, remember they're being led astray at the same time as they're trying to understand God. For them, there was no more hope that there was a God in Israel. The destruction of their place of worship. They no longer could reach out to him. And in their minds, they could no longer pray to God. How presumptuous had they been? They had attended a festival recently, and they were there, and they didn't appreciate the temple. Maybe they had gone, oh, we got to go down to Jerusalem again, really? And now when they can't, it makes it that much worse. They were in deep dismay. See, the fact is, your faith is only real when it deals with reality. See, we must face the brutal facts. I mean, you may be like, okay, I don't get that, Pastor John. Well, let me, let me, let me share a passage with you. You all know. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That's a brutal reality. Because all means every single person in this room. Every single one of us has fallen short. That's a brutal reality. That our default setting is the highway to hell. The default setting is damnation. Apart from the reality of Jesus' death on the cross. So we cannot ignore what's in front of us. We may wish for it to be different, we may pray for it to be different, but in reality, the gospel is based in fact. There's no pretending. One of the reasons we're starting here with these brutal facts is because grieving always starts with denial. That's one of the first steps of grieving. In the famous book on death and dying, the author says, the first stage of grief, the first thing we deal with is denying reality. And the only way to work through the stages of grief is to walk through them, not try to find a way around them. So what are our brutal facts? What are the facts that we have to deal with? Well, the past year, the past week, they've given us some focus for how we can lament. So the beauty of this book is not just general vague sadness. Instead, it's specific. It says what is most important is our right relationship to the God of the universe. That's key. See, we're not looking at lamentations because we just came out of 2020. We're not looking at lamentations because of what happened just last week in Washington, D.C. We're not doing that. We are welcome to mourn what has happened. We're welcome to be upset. We're welcome to be sad. But ultimately, what we want to do is we want to get to where we can biblically lament. We want to see things, and we want to mourn in how they relate to the God of the Bible. I mean, this was a surreal week for me. On Wednesday, I'm reading verses 1 through 5. I'm working through the discussion of the destruction of Jerusalem, the capital. And on my news feed, I'm seeing our capital potentially being destroyed. Now, praise the Lord, it didn't. But the very surreal week to be studying this book of Lamentations and see these things that I, I never thought I'd see happen. What happened in D.C., though, is not what Israel was dealing with here. Let me explain why. Israel was God's covenant people. God had said, I'm making a covenant with Israel, and that means you are my people. I make this promise. God has no covenant with America. 
I love this country, and there is nowhere else I'd rather live. But God's relationship to America is very different than the one with ancient Israel. Now, we should be and we can be sad for our country. We can be sad and miss how our country used to be. Our lament for the shameful actions this week of the people who did shameful things in the capital is not the same as what Israel was dealing with. See, Israel was trying to figure out, did God break his promise? Is God going against what he said? They had an existential crisis. They had a promise with God, and then God seems to not keep it. See, God has no contract with America. He has not promised our country anything. And that is why they are lamenting. What we saw this week on TV was brutal. It was lamentable. But there's more to it than, than what we just saw. What we saw is that there are people in this world who are putting their hope and their trust in somebody other than Jesus Christ. We've seen that all year. We've seen that for all of history. Is when you put your hope in anything other than God, that does not work. Some of us hope in government instead of Jesus. This is what we should lament. Some of us hope that only our circumstances got a little better, we would be okay instead of hoping in the God of the universe. Some of us hope in politics instead of God, and this is lamentable. So biblical lament takes what we're experiencing and digs down to the bottom of it and says, how does this relate to the God of the universe? And over the next four weeks, we're going to try to dig into what that means. So hopefully this will whet your appetite and get you thinking about that. So how does the chaos at our capital connect to God's cause in the world? I think it's showing that for some Americans, the trusting in something other than God for their hope is very evident. And as a matter of fact, it's kind of scary in that that's the idolatry that these kings of the northern and the southern kingdom had just done. And that's what the Book of Lamentations was about. See, we need to make sure we understand that when we long for the good old days, it has nothing to do with a certain decade, a certain era, a certain political whatever. There was only one good old day, and it was ruined in Genesis 3. See, the longing for us to have it the way we used to have it, or longing for a time that was in the past, is a sliver of the longing for what we were made for. We were made for relationship with God. Genesis 1 and Genesis 2. Adam and Eve literally walked with God in the garden. So as we long for good old days, or we miss the things, we mourn the things that we used to have, we are to turn that and go, okay, we can't go backwards to the garden, but there is a new garden coming. And that garden is in the middle of a city on the new earth. And guess what? There will be no more weeping. There will be no more mourning. There will be no more death. If that doesn't get an amen from you, I don't know what will. That is what we're to long for. This world is broken, and the world has no answers. We are to not use the world's answers to try to solve the problem, because the problem is bigger than the world. The problem is a problem only God can solve. So we want to be able to look at the news and lament the broken relationship between God and his world. We're to lament the fact that creation has been polluted by our sin. And that's to point back to him. So how are we going to deal with this? 
It'd be one thing if we sit back and say, okay, we're going to learn about lament and so on. What, what is the actual how to do this? And so today I want to point to one thing that's right here in the book of Lamentations that helps us understand how to deal with things mourn and grieve. Well, the first thing we need to do is we need to not deny reality. We do this a lot of times. In Christian circles, it's really easy to just say, yeah, I'm fine. We put up a facade that says, I have no problems when inside I am in turmoil. It should not be that way. When we ignore the brutal facts, we are just being just like those kings of Israel. Many of us, and I know I, I am absolutely talking about myself right here, is that when things don't go the way we want, we medicate the pain by something. And most of the time, that something is something other than the God of the universe. We mask it. And all we're doing is we're grabbing an idol and saying, this will solve my problem. Just like the idols grabbed by those kings, bullet will solve my problems. What idols do you mean? Well, well if I only had that job, if I only had that car, if I only had this many children, if I only had this marriage, if I only had this sex life in my marriage, if only I had this much money, if only I could retire, if only COVID would go away, if only masks were around, if only I could get hugs when I'm at church. We are to lament, but we can't do the things that we want. We are to lament these. But having those things is not going to change our base problem. But having God will. So I'm concerned that if we, if we look back on 2020 and go, hey, it's done, I'm fine. We're going we're gonna to actually not be dealing with what we've gone through in a right way. Our hearts tend to avoid reality. We want nothing. We just want to, I don't want to think about it anymore. But instead, I want to encourage us, we're going to actually look back on 2020 and go, Lord, this hurt. This was terrible. I didn't want it this way. And everybody's got stories like that. I didn't want to leave a job that I had, I had been at for 16 years and not get to say goodbye to a single person, a single student. I had a coworker who worked at my old job for 50 years. He didn't get a going away party. Now he's all he's kind of ornery and kind of a curmudgeon, so he didn't want one. But oh man, I was gonna give him one. <laughs> but that's the thing, and everybody, everybody in this room has a story like that. And if we push it aside and we bury it down, it builds up bitterness inside of us. It makes us not able to deal with reality. Because our God is a God of reality. So take inventory. And then, if necessary, Weep over it. Cry. Let yourself feel the emotion. Because right here in chapter 1, tears are all over the place. Look at, look at verses 2, 4, 11, 16, 21. They'll be up here on the screen so you can see them. Throughout chapter 1, throughout the book of Lamentations, tears are throughout the book. Because Jeremiah is letting his emotions out. He's dealing with reality, and reality is terrible, and he's crying. Verse 2, she weeps bitterly in the night. He's talking about weeping over Jerusalem. Her priests groan. That's another way of saying weeping. Her people groan. That is why I weep, Jeremiah. My eyes overflow with tears. The people have heard my groaning. That's the groaning that accompanies his weeping. How many of us are ashamed to cry? How many of us are ashamed to let people cry? Or how many of us are even just not willing to let ourselves cry? 
So you think about it. Who taught you how to cry? Nobody was teaching. Nobody taught you. As a matter of fact, it is the first thing that every single one of us in this room did. We knew how to cry before we knew how to eat. We knew how to cry before we knew how to move. We knew how to wail. Every single human life starts with a heartfelt protest of leaving the one-room apartment they've ever known and coming into this cold, harsh world. As a matter of fact, if at the end of labor, the baby doesn't cry, it's a bad thing. It's a scary thing. Ironically, a few months later, crying is the thing we try to stop. I mean, crying is the thing that leads to, to parents, you know, having an adrenaline rush that keeps them awake but they can't go back to sleep. Crying is the thing that annoys and keeps you from focusing on what you need to do. Crying is something's wrong, and we try to get the baby to stop crying. Just go to sleep so I can sleep. See, tears are a wonderful gift from God. We don't think about that very often, do we? He created and designed every single tear duct in you and me for a purpose. Oh yeah, okay, it's to make sure our eyes don't get dry. No, that's not it. He created it so that we could release pain. Tears are a release valve for pain. Charles Spurgeon nails it, like usual. He says, when you are so weak that you cannot do much more than cry, you coin diamonds with both eyes. The sweetest prayers ever God ever hears are the groans and sighs of those who have not hope in anything but his love. Anything but him. And don't believe my word for it. Look at what Jeremiah is doing here, right? Jeremiah is being written by Jeremiah under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit is bringing stuff up in him that is making him weep. These are tears from the throne of God. These are holy tears. We are allowed to let ourselves weep. Hurting people can cry. Not aimlessly or selfishly, but it's to direct the weeping to the right place. And that's what lament is going to teach us. We can't hide our heads in the sand or put on a good face. As a matter of fact, that is harmful. Bottling that up and holding it inside is not healthy. Both Christians and non-Christian psychologists and counselors agree with that. But instead, we need to let it out. And Lamentations is to help us know how to let it out. Leslie Allen, a doctor, writes, I recall a patient who had undergone a mastectomy. She found it difficult to grieve, she said, because of her Christian faith. She thought grief was a sign of spiritual weakness, a lack of trust. It had to be stifled down, she thought, because it dishonored God. Lamentations contradicts this view. Lamentations validates the tears of the godly, faithful people. But again, don't take just my word for it. Don't just take the book of Lamentations. This is throughout, and I want to show you this. So if you'll turn in your Bibles to John chapter 11, it'll also be up here on the screen as well. You see, Christ sympathizes with our tears because Christ shed those same tears. Two separate times in the Bible it talks about Jesus crying. One is over the city of Jerusalem and one is over Lazarus. The city of Jerusalem and Lazarus have one thing in common. Jesus is weeping for the anguish of people. 
He's weeping for what's going to happen and what has happened. Look at verse 33 of John 11. When Jesus saw her, this is Mary, when Jesus saw Mary weeping, the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. Verse 34, and he said, where have you laid him? They said, come Lord and see. 35, the Bible verse everybody can memorize. Jesus wept. So the Jews said, oh, see how he loved him. Now, why is Jesus weeping here? Earlier in John 11 and verse 23, he tells Mary and Martha, your brother's going to raise from the dead. Because he knows he's going to do it. Next verse, boom, he raises Lazarus from the dead. Lazarus, come out. Jesus knows he's going to do this. So why does he say this? And notice, he doesn't say, don't grieve. He says, I'm going to come right with you in your grief. Because Lazarus died. Lazarus suffered. He died. His sisters were mourning him. His friends were mourning him. They were going to do that again because Lazarus died a second time. Probably the most unlucky person in the New Testament, having to die twice. But he had to die that second time, and this was a precursor to that. And, and Jesus was experiencing that. Why did he have to do that? Why did he experience that? Because he is a Savior who not only dies for us, but has experienced every single thing that we've experienced. There's a story of a Roman emperor who decided instead of having really rich, fancy rings, he would do little amber rings, which are really, really cheap. And he would wear them, and they, he was seen with them, and all of the courtesans and all of the, the aristocracy and all the people started wearing those rings as well because the emperor had worn them, even though they were plain and common. Crying may seem like a sad thing, but when we remember that our king wept for Lazarus, over Lazarus, we need to stop seeing tears as something to avoid, but instead, crown jewel of our king. Christ wore the ring of suffering and tears. We should as well. See, God's always involved in the grief of his people. Look at Psalm 56, 8, up here on the screen as well. You have kept count of my tossings and put my tears in your bottle. Are they not in your book? That tossings is, is laying in bed in anguish and, and, and not being able to sleep because you're so upset. He puts the tears in a bottle and he writes them in a book. How sweet is our Lord? Not a single tear that we shed does not escape his notice. Not forgotten, not stuffed down, not hidden away. These are heavenly treasures for our Father. Bottles at this time were rare. And you put stuff in it that you wanted to keep that was especially important to you and had a place of honor. I think of it with me, and my kids have always made me paintings, and I have tons of them, and they're stuck in my desk, and they're bookmarks here, and they're on the walls at home. And I don't care what you say, those are priceless, and I adore those. Even if my kids took two seconds to make it, I love it, because it's my kids. How much more does God love you and love you in your tears? As a matter of fact, this is why Jesus came. Isaiah 61 says, talking about Jesus, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me because the Lord has anointed me. So God has said, you're going to bring good news to the poor. He sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, proclaim liberty to the captives, opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn, 
to grant to those who mourn in Zion. Give them a beautiful headdress instead of ashes, oil of gladness instead of mourning, a garment of praise instead of a faint spirit, that they may be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he may be glorified. Look at that. Jesus is coming on purpose. He has been anointed to come. And when it says, bind up the brokenhearted, that's not put you in a straitjacket. That's grab you and hold you in a hug to put you back together. To comfort all who mourn. I mean, we see all the other stuff there, and Jesus nails every single one of these. But don't skip this. He's here to comfort us as we mourn. And look at the promise at the end of three. That you may be called oaks of righteousness. One of the things when we're grieving, it feels like there's nothing to stand on. Feels like there's there's no hope and everything's in turmoil. And what the promise is is that Jesus comes, He puts us back together, He comforts us, and then He puts our roots down deep into Him, so that we're as strong as an oak. And that is what the promise is for us when we let the Lord enter into our grieving and our tears. See, our Lord was a man of sorrow, and He was acquainted with grief. Remember in the Garden of Gethsemane, he says, my soul is overwhelmed with sorrow. God is in touch with reality. He's not off in the universe playing with galaxies. He was a man who was here who felt the pain that we have. He faced the brutal facts of our sin and our rebellion. He didn't just acknowledge it, but he stepped down into it. So much so that on the cross in great anguish, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He did it because he loves you. God is a pursuing God, pursuing a right relationship based on the facts, the brutal facts. Our hope is that you'll find in Christ the answer to your lament. God sent Jesus to be with us. Jesus loves us. He's gentle. He's lowly in heart. Turn to him. Trust him. When the brutal facts are brought on by your own action, lament is the first step into repentance. So repent. Believe in God enough and desire a relationship with him enough to turn from your sin and trust in the work on the cross that Jesus did for you. Let yourself cry. Let yourself mourn. But then turn that mourning back to the Lord. Because lament is the heart of relating to God rightly. And that is what we're trying to do as we look at lamentations for the next few weeks. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you are a good God. Lord, and you, you know every single thing that is in every single heart in this room. You know what each of us needs, and you are ready and willing to provide. So I pray, Lord, that you would do that. For those who are grieving, allow them to cry. Allow them to not put up a facade. And Lord, those of us that are, 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 are treating our, our grief with something other than you, I pray that we would repent of that and turn to you. And Lord, as we look at the things that make us sad, Lord, we would go deeper and deeper into you. Lord, guide us as we go through these last three sermons on Lamentation.